0: Coming up on Tech Nation, did you know that people who believe the earth is flat still exist? And they're both active and sincere. Daily Beast journalist Kelly Weil covers extremism, disinformation, and the internet. We talked to her about off the edge, flat earthers, conspiracy culture, and why people will believe anything. Then we learn about a new technology in clinical trials right now, which may let us inhale many of our present-day drugs. And we also learn why this could be a significant breakthrough. All this, coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Five, with Moira Gunn, this is 5 Minutes.
0: While we often hear from Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at NIH, he works for Dr. Francis Collins, the director of the National Institutes of Health. Well I've interviewed Dr. Collins on several occasions, in 2013, I was able to speak with him at Building 1 of NIH itself in Bethesda, Maryland. Now, this time, instead of being at my humble studio at KQED in San Francisco, we're right here at NIH, and we're at a building. Most people don't know that there are many, many buildings here, but we're at the very building where it started. The, the, the
2: Nerve Center, one. absolutely. Now, tell us about this. Well, actually, NIH goes back 125 years, but it was initially one room in a building in Staten Island, of all places.
0: I was born on Staten Island. Well, there
2: you go. It's cosmic.
0: I affinity with with NIH now. I can see
2: why you would. So that was at the moment where this laboratory was started to try to look into illnesses that afflicted particularly sailors and particularly tuberculosis. And out of that, became a public health laboratory that then moved to Washington and ultimately came out here to Bethesda. And this campus was most notably dedicated by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, this very building that we're in, Building 1. Buildings here are numbered sort of in the order in which they arrived. So Building 1 was the first one. And this is the place uh, where much of NIH's policy decision-making goes on. But we're a very large, complicated organization with 27 institutes and centers, each one of which is led by a remarkable scientist with vision about where their field should be going, whether it's cancer, heart disease, diabetes, rare diseases, common diseases. We're the largest supporter of biomedical research in the world, and we aim to use our resources as creatively as we can. From tiny
0: science that we started with all those 125 years ago, um, what are we looking at in terms of the science going on today and where that's going?
2: Well, a lot of it is driven by advances in technology. Having had the privilege of leading the Human Genome Project, I will have to mention that genomics is a significant part of that technological revolution because it gives us a chance to look at remarkable detail in terms of inherited factors in disease and for cancer, for instance, which is, after all, a disease of the genome, uh, the precise ability to identify how a normal cell becomes malignant is breathtaking in its sweep and its potential for transforming therapeutics. But we have other technologies, imaging, my goodness, the things that we can do, right down to single cells, looking at the living brain with the kind of resolution that people would not have dreamed of even perhaps a decade ago, and then trying to tie all that together with what we're learning about how we can collect information on people, and maybe even including things like electronic health records. We have lots of opportunities across many different levels of understanding to Figure out what disease is all about and what we can do about it. We have a big data problem, but it's a big data opportunity. It's technologically driven. It's computationally rich. Biology has arrived. We are digital now, and we're glad about that.
0: You know, I remember that the number of institutes which NIH can have is limited. It's very defined by Mm -hmm. Congress. What are we talking about, about how we reinstitute the institutes?
2: Well, when you look at the structure of NIH, uh, you would say only Congress could have designed something that's as complicated as this, because here we are, I have 42 direct reports. Does that sound like a good plan? But you know what? It works. It works because of the talent of the people who have been recruited here to lead those 27 institutes. So now, if we're going to start a new one, we have to kind of move another one out the door, and that's not so easy. So here we are. Uh, we have an organizational structure that looks a little bit kluged, but again, It has a remarkable ability to succeed. And in part because nobody worries too much about those boundaries between institutes. It's all very porous. I mean, if you're studying diabetes these days, you probably need to know about cancer because some of the pathways are the same. If you're studying something to do with the brain, well, yeah, it's about neurologic disease, but it's also about mental health and it's also about addiction. All those things are tied together even though they live in different institutes. It doesn't matter so much. We get the scientists together. We figure out what the questions are. We set people to work and we get answers.
0: You've been listening to a 2013 Tech Nation interview with Dr. Francis Collins, the director of the National Institutes of Health. More information about NIH can be found at nih.gov. That's
1: nih.gov.
0: I'm Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes.
1: Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.
0: From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Daily Beast journalist Kelly Weil about her book, Off the Edge, flat earthers, conspiracy culture, and why people will believe anything. Then we'll hear from Dr. Dale Christensen at TFF Pharmaceuticals about their technology and their effort to make drugs we already know work, inhalable. While Dr. Deborah Levine, the director of the Pulmonary Hypertension Center at UT Health in San Antonio, tells us why that's important. TechNation is underwritten in part by
3: MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at MindK.com.
0: And now, Kelly Weil. Well, Kelly, welcome to TechNation.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You know, at least once a day these days, I'm reading something or listening or watching something, and I know it's not true. And I ask myself, do people really believe this? Then I read your book, and the answer is apparently, yes, they do.
4: You know, it's so funny. I came to the Flat Earth movement with the same question in mind. I thought there's no way people believe the Earth is flat. And I think it was 2017 when I first started digging into it. I thought, no way. And the more time I spent with it, the more I realized, oh, they are serious. This is for many people. This is uh, their whole life. So
0: the short answer is yes. I want to remind people that you're uh, a journalist. And um, so it's not a question of you were just sort of rooting around and found some interesting things. You know, you really do cover this kinds of things for a living. It includes this, but uh, but you actually are looking at many things Uh Describe for everybody the difference between disinformation and misinformation.
4: So the definitions that I would use are that misinformation pertains to information that is false, especially when we talk about it in the media environment and social media ecosystems. Things can be passively false. They can be accidentally false with no malice. But when we start to talk about disinformation, I think of that as a kind of information that is deliberately and malignantly false. It's information that's put out there to deceive people, to push narratives that aren't true. And although disinformation and misinformation can, I think, overlap, it can be hard to distinguish which is which, I think one implies a lot more malice. And that's something that I look into a lot as a journalist.
0: Now, let's get back to the flat earthers. They aren't deliberately putting out what they call the globe lie, just to trick people into doing something they want them to do. They actually kind of believe this. Well, I should say they do believe it. They do.
4: And that is what's so interesting and frustrating for me dealing with flat earthers is that it's not a question of them trying to dupe people for cynical reasons, for money or for laughs, they genuinely believe in their theory. And so it it becomes an interesting question of interrogating those beliefs with people. I'm not just asking, why are you making these videos? Don't you know that it's wrong? It's how did you come to this belief system and how did it come to be so central in your life?
0: I was surprised to learn from your book that the modern flat earth theory of yes, there's an ancient and a modern, if not more, started with one man in the early 1800s in England. Let's talk about him.
4: That's right. So this is uh, Samuel Robotham. He's a very interesting character. He was a one of the leaders of a failed socialist utopian commune. He had a lot of false starts in his career. He tried selling what we would recognize these days as a snake oil medical cure. And then he started promoting flat earth theory. He did it on the basis of uh, experiments that he said he conducted on a very flat canal that supported the idea that earth was perfectly flat. Um, And he Started writing pamphlets and eventually books about this theory. He went on a lecture circuit that became very popular, not just with people who agreed with him, but people who wanted to go for the spectacle, for people who thought, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard of. Because in fact, by the 1800s, we'd known for thousands of years the earth was round, and people who wanted to show up and debate him. And they didn't necessarily puncture his fame as well as they thought. They just ended up drawing more crowds and more intrigue around the sky.
0: Now, it started there, the modern one, and went along. There were personalities, my favorite being Lady Elizabeth Ann Mould Blunt and her wonderful novel. Let's talk about the Flat Earth novel.
4: Oh, my goodness. Lady Blunt is one of my favorite Flat Earthers. Um, Not an especially well-known character, but just a, a bombastic personality, late 1800s. She was a very well-to-do woman. Um, She, quite young, married a wealthy older gentleman, had her fights with him. And at some point during that, I think, distance she had from him, started dabbling in alternate theories and alternate communities, including Flat Earth. From there, she went on to write a book, and (laughs) it, it, it it was a very funny, very petty novel because it it disguised her relationship troubles through these uh, these characters, uh, this young woman, beautiful woman, married to a mean, older gentleman <laughs> who believed in the round earth and wouldn't uh, support her. And then she went out and she preached flat earth and everyone recognized her for a genius. And I thought that was a very um, interesting, uh, I don't want to call it semi-autobiographical, but certainly a work of wishful thinking. um, And it remains a very creative and interesting book in the, in the flat earth um, library.
0: In fact, you'd read for a bit and suddenly there'd be sheet music there.
4: That's right. I mean, this was uh, in some ways an early multimedia work, it was a little operetta and Lady Blunt was, uh, she was very interested in music and she would compose songs about flat earth. And, her characters in this book would break into song and I'm not especially musical, but I can plunk out a little bit. And I enlisted a friend who is more musical than me and we just got these incredible little, um, I don't know my musical terms too well, but these songs about these theories and talking about Copernicus and the sun. And I just, um, I think it must've been especially fascinating to, encounter a work like that in the late 1800s when, to my knowledge, there wasn't too much like it in circulation.
0: Of course, this jumped at some point to the United States, and uh, we have Zion, Illinois. Tell us about that. Zion, Illinois
4: was a, um, I'm going to say, an honest-to-God flat-earth cult. It didn't begin as a strictly flat-earth um town it was a, a town created by um a very charismatic um religious leader but and so because it was created as a religious institution it had um the church was very central to it it could create all its own rules that were quite strict about morality codes then it was later taken over by a hardline flat earth believer and he used both the town's strict rules and his own very retrograde beliefs about flat earth to make this an enforced theory. It was taught in the schools, globes were banned, and it was a very dark, grim place to hear people talk about it. I love reading um journalists' accounts from the Times in the um 1910s, 1920s, because they were going in here and realizing that this is a town where absolutely everybody thinks earth is flat and you are the only globe earther in the place. And as someone who would later go on to attend, say, flat earth conferences, I could really relate to that. And it was fascinating to encounter in these old magazine archives.
0: You describe this today because there are many flat earthers today. In fact, it it surged during the last presidency. Uh, What is it like to go to a flat earth conference and, you know, You kind of know it's not flat.
4: It's very strange. Um,
0: And, you know, when I go to these
4: conferences, I go as a journalist. I make that abundantly clear. I tell people, you know, I'm, I'm not into flat earth. But if you talk to me, I'll listen. And I'd like to just, you know, understand why you believe what you do. It's very strange to be the only person in a room who thinks the earth is round. There's um, almost a baked in antagonism to it. People think that I'm there to debate them or to make them look dumb, something like that. And I think because of that, it took quite a while for people to warm up to me. But one thing that I did find is that ultimately people did want to talk to me and not just to try and push their theories, not to try and convert me to flat earth, but to talk about a lot of the, um, the social issues that have occurred to them in the movement. Um, a lot of the sense of alienation from globe earthers that they have. So it's, um, it's a very weird process. You go in feeling just immensely alien. And by the end of the night and often, you know, after a beer or two, someone's spilling their heart out to you. So um, it's it's been uh, a very interesting reporting process
0: the whole time. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn. And my guest today is Kelly Weil, a journalist with The Daily Beast. She covers extremism, disinformation, and the Internet. Her book is Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and why people will believe anything. And then along comes the internet. In the mid-1990s, you know, suddenly you could actually not just have your own thought sitting there, not really telling anybody in town. This is what I think. and Maybe one other person might know. Along comes the internet. And you can get out there and find your people. You can talk to people. You have a community. And that's when things really gets scary, not just for the flat earthers, but it's the beginnings of such people as Alex Jones. Absolutely. You know,
4: it's interesting, the idea of a flat earth community online, because as much as people do like to find their affinity groups and they do like to find new information, people who agree with them, I think these online communities have also over time distanced people from real world connections and real world grounding connections. I find a lot of conspiracy theorists who have their most significant friendships conducted via these groups where they don't see people face to face. They don't get the mundane and I think very human interactions that keep us stabilized and keep us together in this shared reality. So, um, and in that space, I think um, in that detachment, a figure like an Alex Jones can become very prominent indeed and can become this, uh, this voice that people listen to and accept very uncritically.
0: Well, the internet by itself is one thing, but this rise of social media, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, it goes on, You talk about recommendation algorithms and what you call the polarizing potential of social media as a result.
4: That's right. So social media, I think most large tech companies, they aren't seeking out to do evil. They're seeking to make money. And so in the case of a site like YouTube, they make money by running advertisements on videos and by keeping people on the website, watching videos and watching those ads. So it benefits YouTube to have an algorithm that recommends videos that people are going to keep watching. One thing that it appears the algorithm learned very early on is that people will watch conspiracy videos. And I have a lot of sympathy for that because conspiracy videos have bizarre titles and they're the sort of thing that you click on because you're just fascinated about them at two in the morning. I've done it too. Um, but because those videos performed so well due to our natural interest in them, they started shooting up very high in the recommendations. So um, if you were watching a video about a tamer conspiracy theory, or even not a conspiracy theory at all, but something about astronomy, there was a good chance you were going to get recommended a YouTube video about flat earth. And that pulled so many people into the theory. And then it also, I think, taught some more cynical YouTubers that if they made a video about flat earth, there was a good chance that they were going to, um, to get a lot of hits and to get a lot of attention and money.
0: What makes a good conspiracy theory? Are there elements there? Sure. So
4: I think all conspiracy theories speak to um, a believer's sense that the available information isn't quite there. Either they believe that there are unanswered questions, or they believe that the reality doesn't um, doesn't make them feel comfortable. It doesn't affirm their prior beliefs. So a good conspiracy theory will take what appears to be plausible holes in an established narrative, and it warps them. And it says, maybe that's not the truth. Maybe this thing that you already wanted to believe is the truth. So in the case of flat earth, a lot of believers are, um, they're quite religious and they want to believe in a universe that um, is more in their minds connected to God, or it's a smaller universe, it's a younger universe. And a lot of flat earth teachings will say, the reason that you feel like the um, the common accepted science of evolution and a vast universe, the reason you feel that is wrong is because it's actually Um, a very small contained world in a flat, uh, a flat planet contained in a globe and the scientists are lying to you. So that's how a good conspiracy theory is playing on people's doubts. It's playing on people's willingness to believe something that's comforting to them and, um, asking questions in the right way that Allows people
0: to doubt, well, I have to say, you know it's like, okay, so uh, the Apollo astronauts didn't land on the moon, and uh, I mean it just goes on uh, and it's like it's governments and scientists and and all of this, and it's not always clear what their these governments and scientists and whoever are are doing this are are getting out of it.
4: It's interesting because flat earth in my mind is such um, an open-ended conspiracy theory. It's such a large conspiracy theory. It's not just about something narrow like chemicals in the water. It's literally all encompassing when it comes to someone's uh, worldview. So because of that open-ended nature, it lets people bring in their own suspicions. It lets people cast blame as they want. And I think that's quite useful for a lot of people. People will um, use the theory to invoke anti-Semitism. They will blame um, Jewish people for being behind the flat earth cover-up. Or if they're coming from a more anti-government angle, they'll say that the world leaders are covering this up. Um, Or they will say that it's a plot to deny God. So it's a very creative theory in its own way because it lets people use it exactly how they want.
0: Now, you talk about Rachel Bernstein, who is a psychologist. Uh, She calls this a closed loop of logic and communication. And I think it goes beyond just flat earth. It goes to, to, well, just don't change the channel. Keep it on that one in the TV or just read or watch these videos or these websites. So it's anytime there's a closed loop that feeds on itself, it's hard to get out of that. Absolutely. And you'll
4: see that in conspiracy media, they're not just promoting a theory, but they're also actively uh, sowing doubt and animosity against more established media. So they'll say, we're the only ones who are going to tell you the truth. Or, You need to stay on this channel. You need to keep reading don't believe the discredited mainstream media, because when people do have that greater variety of media sources and they do have a greater variety of inputs, it's easier to discredit conspiracy theories. So these theories do form a closed loop in that they pull people in, they get them fixed on this, this really, I think, fascinating information, you know, it, it It's appealing because it is so scintillating and so weird. And then they seed animosity against the outside world. And that keeps people in a conspiracy theory.
0: Well, whether we're talking about just plain old disinformation, misinformation filed by politicians in recent years, or people like Alex Jones and his InfoWars, who recently lost a major lawsuit about claiming that the Sandy Hook event was staged, (laughs) you know, it's like, wait a minute, you know, what's, what's going on here? These people have been taken off the major social media sites. Does that actually work?
4: Yes and no. Um, In the case of Alex Jones, he was taken off of Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and in terms of his very immediate reach online, it did help. Um, I watched just not only as his influence on those websites evaporated, but also his uh, website's ranking. It went way down over the course of years. I think it's, it was around a quarter of what it used to be. That said, conspiracy theories, I think, will always be potent online. Um They, as I've said, they are powerful because they Offer alternate explanations that people are looking for. And I'm not sure there's a way to completely moderate them off the internet in its entirety. Uh, Conspiracy theorists have always been fairly early adopters of technology. Zion, Illinois, which we talked about earlier, was one of the earliest adopters of radio. They had this far reaching radio signal that was beaming flat earth information out into the middle of the ocean where sailors could listen to it. So, from Illinois. Back then. From (laughs) Illinois. And sailors who should have known better. You know, they were circumnavigating the world as they did it. But all that's to say that there is an extent to which um, trying to ban information off the internet can be a game of whack-a-mole. And what I think might be more successful um, is a more holistic approach and saying, okay, well, we know how a website like YouTube has... Artificially amplified flat earth in the past by allowing it to be so, um, so successful in its algorithm. Can that website go and undo the damage? Can they change its algorithm? So it's, uh, so it's not so artificially promoted. And that's what YouTube has done with regard to flat earth and a couple other conspiracy theories. And now it's, um, it's much harder to find flat earth videos. Certainly they exist. They're not banned, but their reach is a lot less powerful
0: these days. I'm speaking with Daily Beast journalist Kelly Weil about Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, conspiracy culture, and why people will believe anything. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, Pandora, and Alexa, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, an effort to make drugs which work today, either in pill form or taken by IV, now to be delivered by inhaling. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm speaking with Kelly Weil, the author of Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. Well, let's remember that in all these cases, the longer you're on, the longer you're engaged, the more ads you see, and that's how they make their money. And um, I go back to what we call the, the innovation cascade, either new technology or or old technology that we're using in a new way. And then suddenly everybody uses it. They use it every which way they can. And then finally society looks at this and says, well, wait a minute, this is okay. And this isn't okay. And then finally we might pass a law or two. So here in the social media space with, with misinformation, disinformation, any kind of conspiracy theory, it was amplified In the stage of all suddenly everybody's using it and society didn't quite know what to think of it. And so now that they were like taking people off or whatever, it was like, what took you so long? You know, but I think what took you so long may have been just, hey, we've never seen this before. What do you think about that? I think that's absolutely true.
4: And I see this with emerging social media platforms, um, websites like TikTok, where right now those TikTok creators who are almost universally young people are having a lot of the same realizations that YouTubers had maybe um, 10 years ago with regard to conspiracy content. They're realizing that it gets them a lot of Curiosity clicks. So I've seen a, um, a very strange TikTok based resurgence of, I almost want to call it a rebooted satanic panic narrative. There's all these bizarrely young people to me who are looking for, you know, satanic imagery in concerts. And I'm like, yeah, you're, you're 18, live your life. Um, but that's, <laughs> that's, that's an aging millennial speaking. Um, but yes, to your, to your point that it's, um, that there is a delay between the mass adoption of these sites and those sites and regulators and society at large figuring out what's going on in there is that's very true. Um, And I think it's um, it's a a murky time for those sites to exist. And we're seeing them with uh, we're seeing that with sites like TikTok right now, where people are figuring out exactly what's going to get them the best engagement and the sites are still figuring out what their ethical responsibility is and how to approach that technologically. And they're not quite there.
0: And the fact is the sites could could look at the what's going on and see, is this disinformation, misinformation? Well, we can't permit that. And they can do that more leisurely. But when a person is listening or watching or reading, you don't know if it's Any of those?
4: Absolutely. You know, it's um, I think it's very difficult to enforce um, media literacy or conspiracy literacy, I should say, on people at large, because social media has really democratized who we listen to. We're not just listening to a certain set of cable news outlets. We're not just reading a few legacy newspapers people uh, are getting their information from a broader and I would say less expert field of players. So when people are willing to trust these alternate voices, and that's not always a bad thing. I do love that the internet lets people um, speak to the masses, even if they don't have a fancy degree. But when we... Allow those information floodgates to open. We also, I think, need to be a little bit more critical in where someone's coming from, what their qualifications are, and what their biases are. And often, like I've said, sometimes it's just making money and getting attention.
0: And you can't, as a human, do that. There's no tag in your brain that said, oh, you just consume that. Oh, actually, that's wrong. That's whatever. It just goes into your memory. And so we sort of have to be in partnership with the the social media that provides it. Absolutely. And, you know, um, there have been
4: there's been a rise in, I think, very smart anti-conspiracy TikTok content, which I I think is great. Um, It's young people who've recognized an issue on this platform, maybe before the platform has realized. And they're going through and they're saying, okay, as another young person, this is why what you're looking at here is a lie. And. I, I think it's a really smart, engaged, community-driven way of addressing conspiracy theories. But unfortunately, that does require a lot of work, a lot of unpaid work um, from people in the community. And it's um, it, it's always, like I said, going to be an issue of
0: whack-a-mole. And it can always be gamed. They come up with something, somebody will game it. Yep. <laughs> That's being human.
4: <laughs> and of course, I mean, the other element to that is... Um, people won't necessarily disbelieve a conspiracy theory because they've seen a video debunking it. This is my issue with so many flat earthers that I've come to know over the years is we can talk evidence all day. I can show them quite easily proof of the earth's curvature and they'll say that's not real. The picture of earth from space, that's a CGI rendering. Um, you know, when you see the sunset, well, that's, uh, an illusion created by, you know, it's a mirage. And so there does need to be a bit of willingness um, on the part of conspiracy theorists to um, to have their minds changed and to listen to some more reality-based theories. So as much as I want the, uh, the TikTok debunker teens to save us, they can't do it on their own.
0: <laughs> That's great. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back. See us again. Thank you so much. My guest today is Daily Beast journalist Kelly Weil. Her book is Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. It's published by Algonquin Books, a division of Workman Publishing. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. When something medical is wrong, we love to say, do you have a pill for that? Besides wishful thinking, part of that inquiry is wanting to avoid needles, or in the case of biopharmaceuticals, long hours taking an IV drug. Some medicines can be inhaled, but only some for various reasons. And while a pill seems to be the easiest, there are actually downsides to taking medicines orally. Today, we look at an effort to improve the delivery of already existing medicines with a new technology. Dr. Dale Christensen is the head of clinical development at TFF Pharmaceuticals, and Dr. Deborah Levine is medical director of lung transplantation and director of the Pulmonary Hypertension Center at UT Health San Antonio. Well, Dale and Deborah, welcome to TechNation. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Hi, Moira. Thank you. Today we're talking about inhaling medicines instead of taking a pill or getting an injection or taking a drug via IV. And as I understand it, Dr. Levine, the two ways to inhale medicine is either via a nebulizer or an inhaler. Now, what's the difference?
5: Well, I think... um... Many patients, whether they're pre-transplant or just have a lung disease, or um, post-transplant, may have been have experience with an inhaler or a nebulizer. A nebulizer is a little bit more uh, complicated. It's handheld. It's um, usually uh, aerosolized, and um, it comes with a a, a, a small uh, machine. Uh, it's not. Uh, Portable as much as as um, as an as a uh, um, as an inhaler. An inhaler is one of these small devices that probably fits in the palm of your hand in most cases. And I'm sure people have seen it for asthma or for COPD. Um, you can uh, use it. It's either a meter dose inhaler or sometimes they have a, a dry powder uh, inhaler. So it's there. There are different um, many medicines can be used either way, uh, especially bronchodilators, which are used for asthma and COPD. Um, some medications are made uh, particularly just for one, either the inhaler or the, um, or the aerosolized type. Um, many times in terms, if there are both available, sometimes patients who are older, who may not be able to get the strength to breathe in, sometimes the aerosolized are easier for those patients, and maybe sometimes we get those for them. But oftentimes, um, when the medication is really made for a particular type of uh, device.
0: Now, how effective are these nebulizers and inhalers at delivering drugs?
3: That's a very good question. So the there's a whole lot of science behind the different devices and nebulizers can run anywhere from 10 to a standard jet nebulizer. Like most people are familiar with, they they run in the 10 to 20% efficiency range. So 10% of the drug you put into the nebulizer cup, uh, that liquid, 10% of that reaches the lung. Uh, in the case, there are some more advanced ones that go up to 25 to 30%. By comparison, the dry powder inhalers that have been uh, becoming more popular, especially for COPD and asthma, uh, those devices can deliver 50 to 75% of the powder that's in, put into a capsule and loaded into the device can be delivered into the lung. And so the dry powder inhalers are much more efficient at uh, delivering the drug to the lung directly.
0: Well, Dr. Christensen, I believe this is where TFF Pharmaceuticals comes
3: in. Uh, as I understand it, that's what you're doing. Yes. So TFF stands for thin film freezing. It is a technology that was developed by the University of Texas at Austin. And the uh, the researchers at the University of Texas Austin, at Austin who developed this technology Uh, they discovered that if you make a solution of a drug and add excipients, excipients are additives to the medications, things like um, stabilizers. Uh, In many cases for inhaled drugs, it's simple sugars like lactose or sucrose or uh, mannitol, for instance. These are sugars or sugar alcohols that act as a carrier for the drug. And so you you create a solution that contains the drug and the excipient compounds, and then you drip it onto a surface that has been cryo-cooled. And when, when I say cryo-cooled, that means it's really cold, between minus 70 and minus 100 degrees Celsius. Don't touch it. Don't touch this plate. Don't touch it. <laughs> and when that liquid hits that plate, it instantly freezes, almost instantly, and creates a thin film that looks almost like a little pancake. If you collect those films uh, and then use the process of freeze drying or sub, or lyophilization, you remove the solvents and the water from the solution, and it leaves behind a dry powder that, when um, put into capsules and inhaled through the device, is ideal for delivery to, of these drugs to the lung. Now, how is that
0: different from other powders that have been produced or are being produced for medications for inhalers
3: so currently most most drugs that are delivered in a dry powder inhaler are are created by two techniques uh, one is a it uh, is a mechanical milling process where they use air you know high pressure air to break apart the solid particles and break them down into very small, fine particles, or they use like stainless steel balls to break them down into very small particles. The other technique is called spray drying, where they can, they they take a, a mixture and they spray it in high heat and vacuum, and that heat is used to remove the solvent rather than uh, a cold process. And unfortunately, when you try to uh, take drugs that are things like antibodies, uh, biological molecules, the heat destroys them. And so they don't survive very well. So the TFF process can be used for normal small molecule drugs like voriconazole, tacrolimus, niclosamide drugs that we currently have in clinical trials, but we're also exploring the use for uh, Uh, MRNA lipid nanoparticles like the vaccines for COVID. Uh, We're also looking at antibodies like the Regeneron antibodies. Uh, We have a product for COVID that is similar. It is an inhaled antibody, so you're delivering the antibody directly to the lung. Uh, So we we can produce stable biological molecules for delivery directly to the lung using this technology where the other technologies cannot deliver biologics. Now,
0: biologics are all the biopharmaceuticals that are really large molecules, Correct, and that's really important. So right now we have to take them and we call infuse them, or as Dr. Sanjay Gupta says, it's an IV drug and you've got to sit there for an hour to two to three to get it into your system. But you're telling me that we could actually take these biopharmaceuticals, the large molecules,
3: and, and take them into a powdered form and inhale them? Correct. And the TFF is working on an antibody to treat COVID that way uh, and has shown that we can create stable dry powders for inhalation uh, so that you could deliver the antibody, neutralizing antibodies directly to the lung instead of sitting in a chair. Um, That way you could do it on an outpatient. You could get a COVID diagnosis, go to the pharmacy, pick up an inhaler and take your medicine at home instead of having to go sit in an infusion center for two to four hours to get an IV drip solution of the antibodies uh, delivered to you. No needles. Correct. That's it. A lot of people
0: are going, no needles? We like no needles. Okay. Now, you're head of clinical development. So you've got all these trials. These are all in testing at some point or, or stra- getting strategized to be in testing. Um, let's cover some of those. One is um, something called TFF-VORI, V-O-R-I. And this is finished phase one. I guess you're going into phase two. What's this for?
3: Yeah, so the TFF-VORI, uh, VORI stands for voriconazole. Voriconazole is currently an approved drug for the treatment of fungal infections in, in the lungs and bodies of patients, pre- predominantly lung transplant patients or cancer patients who have acute leukemias. And so their chemotherapy um, destroys the immune system. And so in each case, when these patients are severely immunocompromised, uh, you, they, the patients inhale fungal spores or the, um, the fungal canidia get into the lung, the fungus starts growing and becomes invasive into the lung tissue. Uh, when you deliver a drug like um, by oral administration, it has to go through your GI tract, get absorbed into your blood, and then uh, only a fraction of the dose that you take by oral delivery gets into the lung. And so there's a, lo- a greater chance for toxicity in other organs. Uh, And so, you know, voriconazole, while it works the best of any medication for uh, invasive pulmonary aspergillosis, it it also is uh, hampered by toxicity in the liver and can also cause visual problems to where people can't see well. And so by delivering the drug directly to the lung as a powder, we are able to get a higher dose right in the lung where where the fungus is growing and reduce the amount that gets into the blood so that uh, so that you can avoid those adverse toxicities. Uh, and our phase two testing that is starting this year will prove that, or we hope that it will prove out that we can be both more effective and safer for the patients.
0: This is uh, a general emphasis, if you will, in that while we love to take pills that will solve our problem. When we take it, we take it and it affects our entire body and hope that the specific thing we're trying to solve will be solved. <laughs> but there there can be side effects because it's taking the entire system in.
5: Especially for many of our patients, uh, and, and the patients Dale is talking about, are on multiple medications, not just a few. And I think some of the other things you can think about is that sometimes these drugs uh, have interactions with each other called drug-drug interactions. And so not only are they having these oral drugs maybe having a lot of side effects on other organs, they also may be interacting with each other in a way that would potentiate one or negate the other. And so some of these things really um, come into play when you absorb uh, the, the uh, medication orally. <laughs>
0: Now, Dr. Christensen, let's take your, your other most advanced uh, program here, TFF-TAC, T-A-C. What's that about?
3: Yeah, so that drug uh, is, again, uh, the drug name is tacrolimus. It is an approved drug that is used to treat, uh, to treat transplant patients. And so tacrolimus causes the body to suppress the immune response so that it cannot fight and reject the grafted tissue or grafted organ. And that. And tacrolimus is the most common immunosuppressive drug used in heart, liver, kidney, and lung transplants.
0: And Dr. Levine, you have a major interest in this drug.
5: Absolutely. Uh, tacrolimus uh, is, as Dale has suggested, the most common. It's part of a usually three-drug regimen for immunosuppression which includes um, usually mycophenolate, Mopatel, prednisone, and then tacrolimus, uh, all taken orally. Um, tacrolimus has been the mainstay, or what we could call the workhorse, of immunosuppression uh, in lung transplant for many, many years. And it's very effective, uh, probably the most effective uh, worker bee we have at this point. The issue with tacrolimus and what's uh, with all calcineurin inhibitors, tacrolimus is a type of drug uh, uh, which is under the uh, umbrella of calcineurin inhibitors, the other one being cyclosporin. These drugs do have uh, multiple side effects, a lot of complications in other organs of the body. The most common and probably the most detrimental to our patients is uh, it affects the kidneys. Our patients already many of them have some kidney issues they can have. Uh, many of these patients may already have hypertension or diabetes, which can also affect the kidneys and having a drug that may be uh, uh, affect affect them even more uh, is is detrimental the other The other offshoot of that is that a lot of our drugs that we use for other things in lung transplant also can affect the kidneys, whether they be antibiotics or other medications that are needed. So um, having a drug that can cause renal uh, or kidney problems uh, on top of the kidney problems they already may have and the fact that they're already taking medications that can cause kidney issues uh, is very important.
0: Now, Dr. Christensen, you know, the good news is that you've got a lot of drugs you're looking at here, trying to put through the thin film freezing process and, and test them. And there are just way too many to talk about them one at a time. So, uh, but I would like to ask you about these drugs have already been approved for use by the FDA, but you've got to get them approved again. Is that going to take just as long as it did the first time, or is that shorter?
3: No, that's a very good question, and um, because these drugs are approved, and part of our reason for selecting these drugs is that they can be approved by what is called the five hundred five b two pathway, where they where it is changing the route of administration, and so uh, in doing trials of drugs like this, we don't have to go back and repeat all the toxicology experiments and all of the other exper- experiments that were. Uh, used to get the drugs approved in the first place, what we have to do is prove either bioequivalence, or in this case, because we're really changing the route of administration, we think that, uh, as I mentioned for voriconazole, because we're delivering the drug right to the site where it needs to work, we think that it, it can be more effective, and we think that we can reduce the toxicity. And so we're doing comparator trials uh, in phase two and beyond, and a phase three trial potentially to show that uh, superiority compared to the original drug. And so that uh, expedited pathway means that instead of a, you know, five to seven year approval process, it can be reduced down to uh, two to three years.
0: It also occurs to me that when one usually goes in with a new drug into phase two, phase three, you don't know if it's going to work. We actually know the drug is going to work, but we don't know is if this
3: delivery method and at what dosage it's going to work. Correct. And that is a big part of these uh, phase two studies that we're conducting this year is to uh, identify the appropriate dose so that we can then perform the phase three studies to, uh, or, or the registrational type studies to prove the, the superiority compared to the other drug. Or the the originator uh, drugs, and so that is the type of studies that we're doing. We've already proven, in the case of tacrolimus, we've already proven that we can deliver it to the directly to the lung, that it is safe for the patients to take by inhalation, and that we can get blood levels that are sufficient for immunosuppression uh, for for those lung transplant patients, and. One of the unique things, um, again, for tacrolimus, it's a drug that if you happen to eat a high fat meal before you take an oral pill, the amount your body absorbs is reduced by half. What we've proven in our phase one study is that you can take the inhaled drug, our dry powder inhalation, uh, right after a meal, and it has no effect on the absorbance into your blood. And so Uh, That is another advantage that this route of administration has, is that it can make it easier for the patient to take the medication because they don't have to time it around meals and other things.
0: Now, I didn't want to leave without asking you, uh, Dr. Christensen, what motivated motivated you? Uh, I understand that your
3: granddaughter had a medical challenge. Yes. So, so going way back, my father uh, had multiple sclerosis, and that's what interested me in drug development in the first place. But uh, I've got a granddaughter who is um, six and a half years old, and uh, shortly after she was born, she was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. Cystic fibrosis is a uh, lung disease that um, you know has gotten a lot of news. Uh, there are some great drugs that have been developed, but there is still Unmet medical need, and a lot of the uh, a lot of the children, uh, when they become adults, their lung damage gets severe enough that they go into transplant, and so they're constantly fighting infections, uh, lung infections. They're constantly fighting uh, or trying to hold off lung transplant as long as possible, and so by specializing in development of drugs to treat pulmonary disease, this gives me a way to really have, you know, bring home that message and and develop things that will help close to home and close to my heart. Well,
0: thank you, Dale and Deborah, and good luck to your granddaughter. And uh, I hope you'll both come back and see us again. Keep us updated. Thank you. Thank you so much. We appreciate it, Moira. Dr. Dale Christensen is the head of clinical development at TFF Pharmaceuticals. And Dr. Deborah Levine is medical director of lung transplantation and Director of the Pulmonary Hypertension Center at UT Health San Antonio. More information about all the drugs being trialed in TFF Pharma's pipeline is available on the web at tffpharma.com. That's tffpharma.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.
1: Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.